Welcome to the Herbs with Rosalie podcast, a show exploring how herbs heal as medicine, as food, and through nature connection. I'm your host, Rosalie de la Forêt. I'm an herbalist teacher and the best-selling author of the books Alchemy of Herbs and Wild Remedies. I created this podcast to share trusted herbal wisdom so that you can get the best results when relying on herbs for your health. I love offering up practical knowledge to help you dive deeper into the world of medicinal plants and seasonal living. My goal is that you'll walk away from each episode feeling inspired to start working with herbs in your everyday life. Each episode of the podcast is available on my Herbs with Rosalie YouTube channel, as well as your favorite podcast app. Transcripts and recipes for each episode can be found at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com. To get the latest news as well as fun bonuses, be sure to sign up for my weekly herbal newsletter. Okay, grab your cup of tea. Let's dive in. If you love falling in love with weedy plants, and I'm guessing you do, then you'll be head over heels for this fun and informative episode with Sunny Savage. I seriously can't wait for amaranth to start popping up in my own garden this spring, and that's something that you don't really hear all that often. <laughs> for those of you who don't already know her, Sunny Savage is a mother and wild food forager whose life is dedicated to helping people identify, harvest, and prepare invasive plant species through her mobile app, The Savage Kitchen. She is the author of the book, Wild Food Plants of Hawaii, and hosted the internationally airing wild food cooking television series, Hot on the Trail. In addition, she has been a headlighting chef at the Taste of Chicago, a TEDx Maui presenter, and served as faculty at the White Earth Tribal and Community College. Sunny earned a master's degree in nutrition focusing on the antioxidants in wild greens. An avid adventurer, Sunny traveled to every continent before her 30th birthday and has learned from plants and people along the way. She has called the island of Maui, Hawaii home for the last 14 years, but previously adapted to life aboard a sailboat for over three years, in an RV for a year, at a research station in Antarctica for a year, and grew up without electricity or running water in the wilds of northern Minnesota. She enjoys distilling her observations of the natural world into storied solutions. You can visit Sunny at SunnySavage.com. Well, welcome to the show, Sunny. I'm just so thrilled to have you here. Stoked to be here, Rosalie. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited for you to share about your path on with the plants because you know I just read your bio, which has a lot of interesting things in it. And I know there's even other things missing from that bio of creative endeavors you've done. So I just I would love to hear more about, you know, from growing up without electricity and running water to travels to yeah just all the ways that you found yourself in love with the plants and what's what's come of that yeah it's it's amazing when you start to really put it on a timeline and and reflect I feel like oh yeah they've they've kind of always held me and there's always been this amazing connection my mom says that when I was born the forest was carpeted with trilliums Mm -hmm. and trilliums have always been kind of a favorite flower of mine. Yeah. I certainly grew up kind of with a fun, unique scenario in that my parents were hippie back to the landers and we 
lived for the first several years without electricity and running water. And then we built our own house. And that means like logging the lumber and the whole thing from A to Z in a community with about five other families. We didn't live together, but we all helped each other build houses. And, and so growing up tapping maple trees and eating wildflowers and berries was was just my regular life. But there was a, an absolute shift that happened for me in kind of my realization of the scope of how much wild food there truly was around us. When I graduated from high school, I went and lived in Antarctica for a year and I was eating canned and frozen foods and really realizing, oh, my parents did feed me good food. I like to eat good food, real food. And when I returned home, I kind of immediately entered into a nutrition program. And at the same time, my mom had gotten into herbal medicine and we were making tinctures and salves and herbal hair rinses and identifying plants every weekend for fun. And I remember reading in one of Susan Weed's books that you could eat some of these medicinal plants like the nettles and the violets. And it was really truly my moment where it was like, oh my gosh, I felt very pissed off that nobody had ever told me like how much was really at our fingertips. And it set me on a trajectory and it really, you know, I'm almost 46. And so since I was 19, it's really been my path and it's taken me down all sorts of amazing roads on this plant journey, but has been my, my one true dedication. Hmm. Um, all of that is just so interesting. I'm like kind of chuckling to myself that canned food brought you to nutrition <laughs> and then you know just kind of opening up wider and wider from there yeah um, yeah you take 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 something away and then it really builds that awareness and that like wow i've got that respect for for eating real food <laughs> well you are very well known for wild foods in particular and uh, one thing I wanted to talk about is your textiles, because I just think that's something cool that I know about you and just what, so maybe you could just, I'll just let you go from there about what you've done with textiles in the past. You know, oftentimes big moves in my life have been guided through dreams. And when I started working with the wild foods, we were tincturing nettle and I always seemed to get a headache from it. And I really avoided nettle for many, many moons. And then I had a dream about making clothes from wild nettles. And so I woke up with this renewed or, you know, <laughs> curiosity towards nettles and spent months trying to find anyone who was still doing kind of that ancient craft. And this would have been around 2006. And so I found the Kulung Rai tribe in Nepal who still traditionally harvests a nettle family plant, Girardinia diversifolia, and didn't want to support some child labor or something unknown to me. So I actually traveled there and documented their processing of the fiber and started a clothing company that really 
was built around the wild nettle fabric. We also included milkweed fibers and then kind of all of the other bamboo, organic cotton, tensile, eucalyptus fabric kind of things. And I then got into natural dyeing and my family had a personal connection with an auntie who was not able to take penicillin and the family lived in Algeria. And so they were taken under the wing, her care was taken under the wing of a local medicine man who used dyed cloth that was infused with herbs to treat her. And so this story had always kind of played, you know, in my imagination. And then I became familiar with Ayurvastra in the Ayurvedic tradition where garments as well as bedding and towels will be kind of prescribed for certain conditions. And so then I got into really kind of this concept of medicinal clothing. I still keep up with the dyeing, but I I kind of let go of the clothing company at this point. But it was a, you know, a definite path for me. And I learned a lot along the way. And, you know, kind of my thing now is to pretty much everything I wear is from thrift stores. So that's kind of the, my approach to <laughs> modern consumerism around the fashion industry. But occasionally, if I find some beautiful thing, you know, that supports a local artisan or, or something like that, I'll go. But I'd say 85 to 90% of my clothing now just comes from the thrift store. Mm, nice. Well, I, I remember when you um, kind of gave up the, or, you know, walked away from the clothing and you sent me fabric from that. And I brought this out. You'd sent me this beautiful fabric and I just felt so honored to receive it. And it was quite a big bolt or, you know, quite a lot of yardage. So I had it made into a bag and I gave that to herbal students that I had. This is, I don't know, 2014 or something. It seems like it was a, a while ago, but it's just such a beautiful fabric and something I mean, it's lasted so well and something I will treasure for a long time. So thanks for sharing that. I learned some things I didn't know uh, that story as well. And so now you work a lot with invasive plants and eating them up. So I'd love to hear about that as well as the plant that you've chosen for today. Yeah, I moved to Hawaii 14 years ago. I was hosting a wild food television show, a wild food cooking show. We came here to film and I ended up staying. And I kind of immediately felt like a fish out of water. Oh my goodness, living in the subtropics, tropics was totally new to me. And it took me some time to learn some things. And then I you know, slipped into my teaching mode of sharing information about plants and kind of quickly realized that when you live on an island, sharing plants that aren't as abundantly resourced is unwise. And so I shifted to, you know, keeping the knowledge alive around the biodiversity that we have, but really kind of outwardly focused teaching about invasive species. And Hawaii is oftentimes called the invasive species capital of the world. We just have such high rates of endemism, and that means that they are plants or 
animals, insects, fungi, whatever, that are found here and nowhere else on the planet. So it's a, it, it, everybody loves Hawaii, but then there's this extra layer of it really truly is a unique place ecosystems wise. And so we have many invasive species that what I really realized there was such this need within the culture of people living here to grieve the incredible loss of biodiversity that's happening. But in that grief or unacknowledged grief or nowhere to put the grief, a lot of large scale grants are put in place to eradicate invasive species. And so there's a a very high chemical use and negativity around invasives here that is amplified because of that. And that really didn't feel right to me either. And so I've been in a sometimes unpopular position of kind of trying to change the story around invasives and mostly just through advocating their use of eat the invasives and sure you know it might not be a realistic that we're going to eat everything but we're certainly going to put a a damper on increased seed dispersal and we are shaping our environment so through time we start to have this practice we start to really build them into our lives that we'll have an ear for them. We'll have an understanding of how to be in relationship with them in a more balanced way. So yeah, so most of my work now focuses pretty extensively, not exclusively, but almost exclusively on the promotion of eating edible invasive species. Hmm. And I'm guessing the amaranth is a, a prolific one there. Indeed it is. Yes. I really kind of sat on this question of which plant to choose because we're plant people and these are very hard questions. (laughs) So yeah, we have spiny amaranth here, amaranthus spinosus, which is a, a, a pretty intense invasive of tropical and subtropical areas. Obviously, we see our zones changing, and this is certainly found in temperate areas as well now. But it is, in general conversation, people have a lot of negativity towards it. It's got the sharp double spines. And if you're trying to do any type of gardening, farming, this is where its presence is really especially felt in our industrial agricultural systems. And so I'm in my own personal journey. I did not have this plant. Certainly it was around, but, and I was eating it, but truly a few years ago, going through some health challenges of my own, then boom, the plant is everywhere. And so that old adage of like, look what's growing in your own yard as the medicine you need. And so it really has become a, a close herbal ally. I just so look to this plant as such a champion in the medicine that humanity needs at this time. It is overstanding the onslaught of chemicals. It's this weedy annual that is literally becoming glyphosate resistant, considered a super weed, meaning that it's like, I'm showing up for life and you're not really going to be able to stop that. And 
So for me, when there's something that has so much strength, so much joy and presence and just showing up over and over amidst the chemical onslaught, to me, when I eat that plant, that genetic transfer of information is happening. And I am therefore being informed on how to overstand that myself, because it's all connected at this point. Everybody wants to go to the mountaintop to harvest, you know, a pristine wild food, but glyphosate is water soluble. It's found in Antarctica now. It's it's traveling and it's everywhere. And so eating these weedy invasives that are actually growing right where we're living and not having to travel out into remote wilderness areas it has such a profound appeal to me at this time. And, and I just feel like we're in the sixth mass extinction and humans, if we look out our windows, so much of the global population will have that plant. Mm -hmm. We'll have that plant growing in vicinity of them and how profound that it is spermatogenic. It increases, you know, the motility of sperm and testes weight. So as we, yeah, we have over 8 billion people, but are we're decreasing our fertility, you know, and that's going down. So if we choose to be in relationship with it, it offers a wide, broad stroke of medicinal as well as nutritive effects for us. So I just truly am in awe of it and its tenacity for life to, to be that like last one standing kind of thing, you know, I mean, it's just really there. So yeah, I eat it, it on average, probably at least four times a week, sometimes more, sometimes maybe less, but it is hugely a part of, of my day to day. Well, that information download that you're talking about, Sunny, I just have this sense of like, I am resilient. And it's just feels very reminiscent of say like dandelion too. We love that as herbalists, right? The dandelion poking out between the sidewalk cracks and, yeah. uh, but the sea, this amaranth seems to have a very similar feeling and uh, underlying message that, that comes with its gifts. Yes. We don't really have a lot of dandelion here in this. Right. Subject. Yeah. Yeah. You've got amaranth. <laughs> I, so I have, I do have lots of questions. One question I know will be one of the most common questions people are wondering right now, because I'm wondering it too, is there are many kinds of amaranth out there. I have one that grows all over my garden. I don't know the species name on that. I've never keyed it out. We just, you know, people will call it common pigweed and I just call it amaranth. But there's many, I'm sure many, many different species out there. And are you aware if most or many of them can be worked with in a similar manner? Yeah, I, I guess I can say with confidence that there are no toxic amaranths. It doesn't mean that all of them are necessarily edible. There are some with kind of some small, rougher leaves, like the one endemic amaranth that we find in Hawaii, but it's only on one island in the Northwest Island chain, which is 250, over 250 islands off of the mainly inhabited Hawaiian Islands. So anyways, just to say that if you're specifically in Hawaii, we have seven to nine documented 
wild amaranths, all of them are edible. So there are some key takeaway pieces for identifying an N amaranth, but as far as getting down to the specific species, not as necessary. So once you open that up into the wider world, I can't say with confidence as much, but it's a pretty safe one, Rosalie. It's a pretty safe one and it's very abundant around the globe. So yeah, you'll, most people will be like, oh yeah, I have an amaranth growing around in my zone. Wonderful. We'll put up some images of amaranth for those people watching on video. And I have to be honest, I don't feel bad that our local species doesn't have spines. <laughs> but- I'm wondering if you could give some basic identification tips for amaranth in general. Yeah, amaranth is an herb, so it's not going to be a shrub or a tree. So I'd say on average, not really extend past like hip height. There are some like a palmer amaranth that can get quite tall as well, as well as some of the showy ones that are grown in garden spaces. So there's, there's some variability within amaranth, amaranthaceae, but it's got alternate leaves, but there is some variability within that. Like sometimes the new, like towards the top, the new growth can almost appear opposite leaves at times. So with the spiny amaranth here, it's really awesome because it has the double thorns, the leaf base where it meets the stem, but the leaf petiole is very long. So that's the leaf stem. So even though there are those spines, you don't usually have to get your hand in super close. So they're pretty easy to just kind of pluck, pluck the leaves off of. How considerate. It's quite considerate indeed. The amaranth has a not almost unidentifiable flowers. The flowers are very small, but the seed heads, it's kind of, well, for those who are watching online, you can see how it has this, this top like this. And this is just so typical of the amaranth, the look and shape. And it's not just one cluster, it can also be from the end of each of those stems. But yeah, it's got the alternate branching. It's dioecious like it has the flowers both here at the, the leaf base as well as at the top. So you have both the male and the female together. So you can see that. I find that especially in the ones in Hawaii, when you go to the tip of the leaf, there's a little notch mm. at the it doesn't come to an exact point. Sometimes it's really obvious. Sometimes it's not as obvious, but there's a little notch where it doesn't go to a point. It goes like that. It's always going to be a little wider towards the bottom of the leaf versus out towards the, the non-point. <laughs> <laughs> and not always, but sometimes there will be kind of a red veining to either the leaves or the stems, which comes from a powerful antioxidant called beta-lanes, which is the same thing that you find in beets. 
not always, but sometimes you find a chevron shape. That's the mark of the goddess before the petrochemical company took over the symbol. And so that's just kind of an, a V shape and an inverted V shape. So as you can see, I'm saying several things that are like, oh, sometimes, but not always. So I'd say that the flower head at the top is such a, a great identifier for our amaranths. Yeah. And the, and the alternate leaves I'm trying to think what else. <laughs> I, I think you've covered it very well. It gives a great sense. Yeah. Well, now my next question is, why would you want to eat amaranth? You say you eat it maybe four times a week. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> I'm especially thinking of like all these gardeners who, I mean, I, this is a strong word, but people hate this plant. People hate amaranth. When people call it pigweed, it's like with detest, you know, they do not Absolutely. like it. Absolutely. If they only knew. Well, Spiny amaranth in particular can meet up to 87% of the human nutritional needs from one plant. So that's eating the seeds, the leaves. That was the only thing used in the analysis. I eat the roots as well. But we're talking something that for a wild green person, like for example, has a lot of protein, carbohydrate, fiber. Of course, like any wild green, you have this beautiful array of micronutrients, which are so often lacking in cultivated plants, even organically grown conventional crops are grown only with three main fertilizers. So our wild foods in general are very high in, in the micronutrients, those minerals and vitamins. The amaranth is especially high in iron, of course, magnesium, the low hanging fruit, which we, you know, you probably are aware that upwards of 70% of Americans are deficient in magnesium. So it is, yeah, I mean, did I mention up to 87% of your nutritional needs from one plant? I mean, that's not a small number. So really, truly profound, nutritive, you know, deeply nourishing to the body. The leaves have been found to have more chlorophyll in them than a supplement that you would buy at a health food store. So that deep chlorophyll rejuvenation, obviously for the blood, blood building, strengthening, where the plant originates from in Mesoamerica. So the the Aztec. I mean, you know the plant is good. It was banned in 1519 by the Catholic Church. So that tells you something right there. The conquistadores saw how valuable it was as a food as well as part of the spiritual practices for the Aztec people along with Maya extending north to Tohono'odham, Hopi, down in the south to Incan. And, you know, our archaeological records showing its use for over 10,000 years. So the reason that I'm eating it is because it connects me to a deep lineage of, of ancestry. It is meeting a massive quantity of ticking lots of boxes on my nutritional needs. 
it's got that genetic transfer of information that is informing me about the ecosystem that I live in. You know, it's on the front lines adapting to climate change and pathogens in the, in the ecosystem. It really has such a broad stroke for cardioprotective, neuroprotective. I feel it's absolutely underutilized in the kind of modern herbal apothecary. It's a powerful analgesic. I mean, our number one thing that we reach for over the counter at a pharmacy is going to be your Tylenol ibuprofen. And here you have a lot of research showing in a dose-dependent manner that the amaranth is, is an analgesic, is a pain medicine, definitely an anti-diabetic medicine. It, it just is <laughs> covering a lot, a lot, a lot of things. Anti-cancer. So I'm eating it because it brings me joy. I'm bringing it because it brings me a deep sense of satisfaction. I feel my body resonating with it. It's mild. It's, I mean, it's just, it has a little bit more depth of flavor than a spinach, but it, I would consider it a mild green. Very, very easy for people to, oh, I can get behind this one. You know, it's, it's, very easy to integrate into somebody who might not like other more strongly flavored wild greens. It's it's just a real superstar <laughs> that tastes delicious also. So that's a really nice endorsement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I don't have to weed and water. I mean, I also have an over half acre garden. I mean, I live in the subtropics, so it's more kind of permaculture style perennial, you know, fruits and nut trees and things like that. But I eat, of course, all of the weedy plants that come up. And amaranth is one of those heavy hitters in that realm. And so I'm managing it through providing a little turned soil in my garden. But I see how much energy to grow from starts and then be out there weeding and then be out there watering. I mean, there is like virtually zero work other than loving it and offering that reciprocal, you know, kind of relationship of witnessing the plant, which is, you know, what I can offer it, sing its praises and be respectful and make offerings to it but it yeah it's providing me with so much it's it's such a dear friend hmm. that's beautiful sunny you know in the beginning you said maybe it's a little optimistic to think that we can eat all of our invasive weeds but i feel like after that you know if you could just like get publicities with this and billboards whatever <laughs> i think it could be done you know like I, i'm like yeah i can't wait and now i can't wait for my amaranth to be here and I already loved amaranth. <laughs> <laughs> My work is done. My work is done. <laughs> well, one thing that people really love about you is your recipes. And I love the recipe that you shared for this because your amaranth ranch rub, I'll let you describe it in just a second. But what I really love about this is it's something that people can make up in advance. And then they have this like way to impress, like a kind of like easy, like, you know, someone drops by and you're like, oh, would you like some 
you know, this cool dip and you could just whip it up so fast. Like I just, I love that kind of stuff of just the easy to make, easy to impress. And then everybody falls in love with amaranth. So people will be able to download the beautifully illustrated recipe card at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you just a little bit about the recipe. Yeah, the Amaranth Ranch Rub is really inspired by my friend, Chef Rob, who I worked with for about a year and a half. We did some like 13 course wild food dinners together and I had a food truck, but he worked on there with me for a while. So he was really the like instigator on this recipe and it truly is such an easy thing. You can make up a large batch of it and then... So basically just to give like a little preamble in that you're just dehydrating these wild greens and you're using your hands to kind of crumble them instead of powder them. And then you're adding to a powdered milk or a powdered goat milk along with dehydrated dill and garlic and onion powder. It's very simple, but it really truly does taste like your little like sachets of powdered ranch rub that you buy at the store and you can utilize it in so many different ways like on the on the fly the quick like yeah I have this potluck that I'm going to or somebody's gonna stop by and I can mix it with my sour cream or my skier or my vegan alternative etc anything like that to make a quick party dip but you can also sprinkle it on top of a soup. You know, you could also sprinkle it on top of a salad. You could also, you know, rub it on top of something that's going to be lightly grilled or lightly pan fried. Obviously, you can use your creative imagination with it, but it is extremely versatile. And it's just a powder that you're going to keep in a super airtight container and then be able to just pull that out whenever you want. So it has a great shelf life and a lot of versatility and is such a great way to use some of those wild greens. And you're getting that, you know, my motto has always been one wild food a day, just having that, oh, at least I'm getting my one little wild thing in my day. Hmm. You know, what also strikes me about this recipe, Sunny, is that the ranch flavor is not one that's often associated with being like healthy or nutrient dense even. And the way you've packed in these wild greens, it's like explosively nutrient dense. So that's a cool thing too. It's a flavor people love and you're just kind of amping it up in terms of nutrition. Yeah. Oh, and I wanted to say popcorn, you know, mm. you also put it on your popcorn. Oh, you're speaking my love language. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. yeah, we eat a lot of popcorn. <laughs> and before we move on, I just wanted to mention, or I guess have you mentioned just different like simple ways to harvest the plant. Like you eat the fresh greens, the seeds, just mm-hmm. a couple of tips on that. Yeah, absolutely. So in the tropics, there are so few greens that I actually eat raw. We have a higher payload of pathogens along with things like insects and snails, etc. So when you look, you, when you actually dive into the ethno botanical or ethnographical kind of accounts is that pretty much all indigenous people to the tropics and subtropics cook their greens. And I find myself absolutely gravitating in that way as well. So I pretty much exclusively eat amaranth as a cooked green, unless there's some scenario like the 
amaranth ranch rub where I'm taking my beautifully harvested greens, dehydrating and crumbling them. So when I do my cooked greens, I will harvest the greens, give them my quick a quick rinse, and then I boil water, and then I just put them into boiling water for about two to three minutes. Mm. I'll strain off the water, and then once it's cool enough, I'll squeeze out any extra water with my hands, and then I can take that and add it to my omelet or add it to my stir fry or add it to my soup or just eat with a splash of soy sauce or whatever it might be. So I predominantly eat amaranth as a cooked green. And then for the seeds, they're very small. So they're obviously very nutrient dense. So we don't have to think of like, oh, I need to harvest like over 50% of my diet in wild foods. No, that's not realistic in our modern times. And we, you know, again, adding just even small amounts of these things actually does have a very large impact on your nutritional and, you know, eating food as medicine kind of status, so to speak, in the body. So for the seeds, I'll harvest them into a paper bag. They're just easy to kind of literally strip off. You know, you just take it and strip them off. And then I put them into that paper bag, maybe let them dry out for just a little bit. And then I take a fine meshed strainer. Typically, most of the chaff that's surrounding the seed stays within the the little colander, the fine mesh strainer, and the very small seeds fall below. And then I pretty much always have a hot skillet and I toast them. Mm -hmm. And I actually had some for my breakfast this morning, of course I had to, where I have my wild amaranth seeds in combination with some organically cultivated amaranth seeds that I mix together. I toast them. As soon as they're done toasting, I put them in the blender, blend them up, and then put them back into the pan or the pot in this case with a little bit of water, a little bit of honey, a little bit of cinnamon, and that's kind of your typical atoll traditional drink or food or porridge kind of style of Mesoamerica where the plant originates from. But the seeds could obviously be added to all kinds of things and they pop up like a little a little puff and the wild ones do just like the cultivated ones do. And then I also eat the root and it's not like eating a carrot. You're not going to have some like big root that you're cutting up into beautiful, you know, big chunks and pieces. I boil salted water and then I put the root in there and I boil for about five minutes, depending on the size. Sometimes you can get quite large roots, which I might boil for a touch longer, but that five minute mark is really the the sweet spot. And then I'll take my hand and pull off the outer skin of the root just so that it's not messy and like kind of clogging up when I harvest the inside. So I just slip my hand over it. It's all softened, but then I can remove it. Then I cut it open and I use like the back of a spoon to scrape out kind of all the innards. So there's a, there's fibers in there and then there's kind of the, the innards. There's like a flesh and I'll include that in there as well. So yeah, I eat all parts except for the stems and spines. <laughs> good call. Good call. Oh my gosh. That was so informative, Sunny, with such great tips too. I was also taught to always cook the greens. So I've always had them harvest them young and then, then cook them. 
And then the only time I've worked with the seeds, what I was in, you know, wild foods class, so 20 years ago, and we were trying to harvest enough to like have enough for all of us to enjoy. And so it was a bit of work. They are very plentiful and generous, but they are, as you mentioned, very tiny. So I love your suggestion of like, instead of thinking like getting all the seeds for your breakfast, but mixing them with other amaranth or using them in other ways. So it makes it more doable. So you can just enjoy what there is and not, it doesn't have to be a chore, which in my mind until today, I thought, oh, amaranth seeds, that's nice. But that's quite the chore. <laughs> now I'm excited. Yeah, so that's wonderful. And I've never eaten the root. So now I'm excited to try that as well. So. Yeah, I like it. It's a it's a real like mineral rich, earthy, milky kind of flavor. Hmm. Yeah. And I had an old Filipino man when I first moved to the island, I was waiting to get my oil changed. And there in the parking lot was a bunch of spiny amaranth. And he told me that they make a liniment out of the root and rub it on for pain. So there we have another little tie in with it being used as pain, pain medicine. So anyways, yeah, yeah. Yep, great wild edible, very abundant. And, and actually with the spiny amaranth, I'll eat tender young greens, but unlike so many other amaranth, actually I typically harvest the older leaves because they'll be like, they get huge. So I'll, I'll wait until they get really big. And so the spiny amaranth in particular, I, it's not so much the tender green from the continent from North America that I was so used to harvesting a little bit on the younger side, even with the meristems. Well, this has been so informative. I'm, I'm excited about amaranth and I'm really excited about other people getting excited about amaranth too, because it is one you just want to see more love for. So thank you so much for that. I'm really excited to hear about projects that you have going on right now, especially your app. Yeah, yeah. I have a mobile app that is called Savage Kitchen, and it has a little purple icon with a star sunburst kind of icon. And it's free in both the App Store as well as the Google Play Store. And I developed it to really assist people in identification finding locations of and eating detailed information on processing and there's hundreds of recipes in there for some of the most abundant edible invasives that we have in Hawaii. But I haven't spent any money on advertising and yet people in other areas around the globe, because these are, I chose plants that were super invasive in you know on a global scale and so we have people in 64 countries now that have downloaded the app and over 10,000 people and it's really a citizen science effort to people can actually locate and and pin using the mapping there's really detailed instruction of here's a bunch of photos of the plant here are some common lookalikes, at least from the Hawaii perspective. There's infographs on how not to spread them further. There's videos, there's quizzes, there's interactive quizzes. So you can like, ooh, am I really ready to go and eat this thing? And yeah, just lots of detailed information along with the recipes as well. So it's been a fun journey. I feel really proud that, you know, it's always fun to take something from a concept and then bring it 
bringing it, you know, in. And I've always been an early adapter to technology. I definitely feel like we need to like get off the phone out in nature. And that's something that I speak a lot to in my book, Wild Food Plants of Hawaii. Like, you know, now that you're out here, now that you think you've identified the plant, you know, put the phone down and use your senses and tap into you know, what's happening around you without that. But the reality is, is that we do use these devices a lot and, you know, embracing the power of that as a potential tool to connect people. You know, it's, it's an avenue that I chose to go down, you know, we'll see where it leads, but (laughs) yeah. Well, what I'm thinking about right now, Sunny, is that, so in my 20 years of being herbal focused plant lover. I've been, I've sold herbal products, make and sold herbal products. I've been a practitioner, teacher, author. And so I often like, you know, looking back on that, I think, who am I going to be when I grow up as an herbalist? And with you, I feel like that like tenfold, you have done such unique, eclectic things with the plants just so creatively. It's been so fun to watch that over the years. And I just, I love that you now are creating this app. Thank you also for making it available for Androids. I I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I just, I'm excited for everybody to check out Savage Kitchen app. And will you say the title of your book again too? Sure. My book is Wild Food Plants of Hawaii. And is that going to be of main interest to somebody who lives in Hawaii or is? I'd say it would be tropical and subtropical focused. However, as you and I know, so many of these are global travelers. So probably upwards of nearly 50% are found in temperate zones, especially now. So it's relevant as well as, you know, practices of, just kind of what foraging and the foraging lifestyle. I would say that when I moved to Hawaii, there's a a larger sense of like, oh, there's coconuts and guavas and things that are out there. So there's a little bit more backyard gardening and, and awareness like that. But then there are so many wild foods that I was like, these are not being recognized. So the book is really, it's not like a Sam Thayer, like super detailed piece on on these plants, but it's more of like, let's get excited. Here are some fun tidbits and, you know, some recipes and some beautiful photos, etc. So yeah, yeah. And then I have the deep dive on, you know, I did want to offer like, the plant monograph on steroids, you know, for the plants that are in the app. So the app is free, but then I do have super detailed, like, you know, 40 to 60 page long, very well-researched plant monographs on, on those plants as well, which are available in my online store, sunnysavage.com. So yeah, I mean, just kind of like always working on doing education and this is where I'm at right now with it. And yeah. Wonderful. Well, I'm enthusiastic and inspired about amaranth and that that just shines through with you. And I love that this is one of many plants that you share the love of. So sunnysavage.com is a great place for folks to go and see more of your offerings. And before you go, Sunny, I would love to ask you my season eight question, which I'm asking everybody. And that question is, what is your most important mistake? In herbalism. 
Yeah, it, it's, it's actually a pretty easy one for me to answer. And that was when I was about 1920. So just really learning the, the wider world of herbs and, and wild foods. And I had my eye on some bee balm. And Monarda fistulosa, I had, I wanted to find this plant. I was like, oh, I can't wait until I find it and found it and really like, you know, kind of like went crazy. My eyes were so big and I harvested and harvested and, you know, was probably singing and laughing and, you know, having a great time. But when I got home, I looked at the like basketfuls that I had harvested and just had that pit in the bottom of my stomach of like, I really have up. Like I harvested way more than I need. And here's this beautiful plant that is feeding the bees and pollinators and adding so much joy, you know, especially I grew up in Northern Minnesota and there's not a lot of like, I live in the tropics now and it's like neon colors everywhere, but you know, this is this beautiful vibrant pink purple that is adding like some real beautiful color to the landscape. And man, I felt like crap after realizing that I had over harvested. And I feel like it's a, a really amazing part of being able to educate around invasives right now, because not everybody had the auntie or grandma or trusted community member to teach them how kind of those ethics of, of harvesting. And so you can learn that lesson in a much less devastating way to the ecosystem by, you know, you don't want to like hamper somebody's enthusiasm, right? It's such an important part of this process to, to have that incredible joy when you're starting out. I felt joy when I found that for the first time and I ID'd it and I knew what it was. And the, the hard reality of syncing up what you're out there and in the moment to harvest with how much time when you get home it takes to process something and how much you're actually going to use. I feel like is like you, you really can have somebody tell you that over and over, but you kind of have to connect those dots for yourself because everybody's needs are different and how much they're actually going to use. And so again, with a native plant from, uh, you know, I was like, sinking in that I can like it still hits me when I think about it but I learned that lesson from that and I you know concurrently feel like that's another really great gift of the invasives is that people need to learn that lesson they can only learn it through their own personal experience and invasives are you know such the great entree for for the noobs out there <laughs> Oh, Sunny, this is such an important mistake. I'm so glad you shared this. Because like you said, you can read that, don't harvest too much, have a plan, think about the energy it takes once you get home. You could, like you said, you could read that over and over and it could not sink in. And it does really, that is one of those things that can just take actual lived experience to fully appreciate. And so, yeah, this is just so important because there's the don't harvest too much lesson, but really to add on top of that, 
and learn that through the process of invasive plants, which are not less deserving of respect, but makes less of an impact. Anyway, you've just shared that so beautifully. And I, I agree, a very important mistake. And I'm so glad that, that you shared that with us. Thank you. Yay. Yay. Oh, I love you, Rosalie. Thank you for all of your beautiful work. And I, it's just been such an honor to know you through time and to see your path and how exciting it's just been. You've really stepped into such a beautiful role in our herbal community. And I really appreciate you and all the work that you do. Oh, Sunny, that means so much coming from you. I feel the same way about you and it's been an honor and it's exciting to watch all the different paths you've taken. And I look forward to seeing what comes with you as well. So thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing so much wisdom about plants, about foraging, about invasives, and of course about amaranth. Yeah. All righty. Aloha. <laughs> thank you. As always, thanks for being here. Don't forget to head over to the show notes at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com to download your beautifully illustrated recipe card and get a transcript of this show. There, you'll also be able to sign up for my weekly newsletter, which is the best way to stay in touch with me. You can also visit Sunny directly at sunnysavage.com. If you want more herbal episodes to come your way, then one of the best ways to support this podcast is by subscribing on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. I deeply believe that this world needs more herbalists and plant-centered folks, and I'm so glad that you're here as part of this herbal community. Also, a big round of thanks to the people all over the world who make this podcast happen week to week. Nicole Paul is the project manager who oversees the whole operation from guest outreach to writing show notes to actually uploading each episode and so many other things I don't even know. She really holds this whole thing together. Francesca is our fabulous video and audio editor. She not only makes listening more pleasant, she also adds beauty to the YouTube videos with plant images and video overlays. Tatiana Rusikova is the botanical illustrator who creates gorgeous plant and recipe illustrations for us. I love them. I know that you do too. Christy edits the recipe cards and then Jenny creates them as well as the thumbnail images for YouTube. Michelle is the tech wizard behind the scenes and Karen is our student services coordinator and customer support. For those of you who like to read along, Jennifer is who creates the transcripts each week. Xavier, my handsome French husband, is the cameraman and website IT guy. Thanks to Rising Appalachia for their beautiful song, Resilience. Find more of their music at risingappalachia.com. It takes an herbal village to make it all happen, including you. Thank you so much for your support through your comments, your reviews, your ratings. I read every review that comes in because they're like a little herbal love letter that brightens my day. Like this one. Q Bonnie wrote, Rosalie, I just found your podcast and listened to them on my ride down and back from Florida. Wow, I learned so much and really enjoyed them. I hardly noticed that I drove eight hours a day. Thank you. I love them. Thank you, Q Bonnie. Do you love this podcast? If you leave a review for me on Apple Podcasts, I may be reading your herbal love letter on the show next. Okay. You've lasted to the very end of the show, which means you get a gold star and this herbal tidbit. 
I belong to a community garden and a few years back we had an intense heat wave that left us hunkering inside instead of out in the sweltering garden. Well, when we finally did make it one early morning, the weeds were absolutely amazing. Amaranth especially had grown almost as tall as me. We harvested loads of it and brought it home to the chickens to feast on. Now, of course, I wish I'd harvested more seeds like Sunny suggested. Sunny also briefly mentioned there's an ornamental or decorative amaranth, and these can be quite colorful and beautiful, and I'm excited to grow them this year to add to my garden flower bouquets. There's really so much to love about amaranth.